Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time For the 100th episode of the Beatles' multi-track meltdown, I decided to do things a bit differently and invited a few friends, who also happen to be esteemed Beatles authors, to pick two songs each and tell me what it is that makes them so special. I've only had a guest on once before when my daughter Ella, a fantastic musician in her own right, co-hosted episode 71, The Musical Children of the Beatles. As many of you can expect, once you begin talking to a fellow Beatle fan, especially one who has written books about the group, the discussions can get pretty deep. Therefore, episode 100 ended up being nearly three hours long. So in order to preserve the full conversations with each author, I've split what was supposed to be one episode into three. So sit back and enjoy some Beatles-related conversations and the selections of Robert Rodriguez, Kit O'Toole, and Jerry Hammack on this special edition of the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Our first guest tonight is Robert Rodriguez, an award-winning author who's written numerous books about the Beatles, including Solo in the 70s, Revolver, How the Beatles Reimagined Rock and Roll, The Beatles' FAQ, the first in the book series he created for Hal Leonard, and its follow-up, The Beatles' FAQ 2.0. He's also the host of the extremely popular podcast, Something About the Beatles, which I've been fortunate enough to be a guest on twice. So, hey, Robert, how are you doing? Good. Three times to come. Three times to come. Here we go. So, what are the two songs that you chose, and what makes them special for you? Well, I picked a couple from the White Album, seeing as how we're immersing ourselves in that experience very soon in New Jersey. Yes. And Your Blues was one that I thought was a very interesting recording, because we know the circumstance of it. The Beatles basically playing nose-to-nose in that storage room at Abbey Road Studios, and how it really, there, there's so many great, great group performances on the White Album, but that one particular has sort of a live feel to it, and I thought that was fascinating. And even beyond the performance, that solo that George plays, that is so unlike anything he ever played on a record at any time, and at the same time sort of evokes the Yoko Ono stuff that would come along later that hadn't been done yet. It's just an amazing, amazing out of nowhere piece of work. So that was something I thought was definitely worth taking a look at. Yeah. And I do love the fact that it is such a group performance. I think it's funny that, um, in anthology, Ringo's like, oh, when we got back together after I came back, there were lots of these group performances. And then they counter that with George going, we worked very much alone on the White Album. But I think it's a little <laughs> bit of both with the White Album. But there are a lot of group performances on that. I never look at it as an album filled with John with the backing band, Paul with the backing band, George with the backing band. Of course, we have those moments, but we also have a lot of great group performances. And this is definitely one of them. Where they absolutely sound like they're having fun, like they're having a blast. You, you know, even a song that's a throwaway like "Birthday," 
it sounds like they're having fun. There's almost like a party atmosphere to it. We know that Happiness is a Warm Gun, they were so proud of themselves for taking us along with those tricky time signatures and playing it live as a band. So they were really getting off, I think, on playing as a band again, coming off the heels of the psychedelia and the productions that were really just slathered with overdubbing and all this, you know, this attention to detail. This was them getting back to being a band again, as Ringo pointed out. Yep. And I think, honestly... I think it's always over-exaggerated the animosity that they felt, whether it was during White Album, during Let It Be, the Get Back sessions, or even after they broke up. I know, you know, there were some really tense moments, but overall, you you even look at interviews in the 70s with John or with George, nobody's that angry, you know, anymore. And really, I think so much of it was business-related with Alan Klein that if you took that out of the picture— I don't think they ever were that angry as as much as you know people like to play it up. I think there were joyous moments during every part of their career. Absolutely. I think the fact that they never did get back together and record and perform as the Beatles again is been interpreted by fans as well. They must have really had these these really irreconcilable differences that prevented that, and it's too bad. But I do recognize as they got older, they had to have seen that those were the only other three guys that experienced exactly what they did. You know, just like as a normal non-celebrity person ages you look back at the people you went to school with and you're like you know we were on that same journey together it's like army buddies you recognize that you've got that shared under fire experience that no one will ever know what it was like except these guys and also i think the beatles were really great at compartmentalizing when you look at historically the dates that certain things we know happened like certain big arguments happened for instance the may 9th 69 when they're at uh, Olympic Studios working on the Get Back mixes, and it, they have this big three-to-one blowout against Paul over Klein that results in them storming off and not doing any work that day, and Paul hangs around with Steve Miller and records My Dark Hour. Yeah. And then just days later, they're all smiling on the balcony of EMI, reshooting the Please Please Me cover for the Get Back release. Right. How crazy is that? <laughs> Yeah. And just the fact that you know what's going on in Abbey Road sessions later that summer where you know Yoko's got her bed in the studio and there's all this reason for there to be a lot of heightened tensions over, like you described, the business situation and the loss of Northern songs and all that stuff. And yet you listen to the isolations of them laying down their vocals all over the Abbey Road album and they just – fell right into place like none of the stuff was going on they rose to the occasion you can even say that for the rooftop of of the uh let it be film right well no matter what was going on at heart they were professionals and when it was strictly music that they were dealing with everything fell into place exactly and look at a lot of uh, linda mccartney's photographs during the white album sessions during the abbey road sessions they genuinely look like they're having a good time a lot of the time. You know, nothing is perfect. We've both been in bands and know that tensions can run high. But overall, you know, I still agree with Ringo's view of it that so much of it was about love and the what they went through. You know, when you have George Harrison saying how tight they were and he's the one saying that, you know, it was, you know, the four of us, we were tight. When it's coming from George you know, who is probably the sourest of the Beatles when it comes to talking about Beatles history. You have to take that as, you know, things were pretty good. It means something, especially coming from him. When you look at 
the spring of 1970, after Paul's bombshell announcement and suddenly every headline, the Beatles are split up or Paul's left the Beatles. And he sends that note around or, or gives the, the interview to uh, the guy in New York, I can't remember his name, um, where he says, I think it would be very selfish for the Beatles to split up and basically making the case that together they're so much more powerful and are giving so much more to the world than they could ever achieve individually. Yeah. You know, they can go off and do their solo things, but you know, they, they shouldn't lose sight of the fact that they've created something far bigger than the sum of its parts. And, you know, he of all people who had ample reason to have left in January sixty nine without looking back, he's the one saying this. Right. Amazing. Yeah. So on the flip side of a song that is a very bandy song on the White Album, what's the other one you chose? I picked Why Don't We Do It in the Road, which is, yes, as you say, not a very bandy performance, although I would have loved to have heard that band performance. Definitely. It just wasn't to be. And Paul has said in his defense, well, you know, the others were working on their stuff in their studios, and I said, come on, Ring, let's do this. And, you know, they just knocked it out. And, uh, you know, John said, yeah, I was kind of hurt by that because he didn't ask me to be involved. But, you know, that's how it was then. I don't think it, a slight was intended. It's a great, great, powerful vocal performance from Paul. You know, Ringo's just there along for the ride, adding, you know, what Ringo does to songs, which is great. It would have been nice to have it as a band performance. But it is interesting. You've got the two different mixes, the mono and the stereo, one with the hand claps and one without. Yes. And it's just an, an interesting sort of a throwaway but not really, because the performance is what redeems it. And then it's followed immediately by the opposite end of the McCartney experience with I Will. Which is amazing, because one thing that you have to say about McCartney is he was able to just turn it around. You think back in 65, recording Yesterday and I'm Down on the same day, like within right. probably minutes or, you know, maybe a half an hour between. Yeah. And that, that just up. shows his versatility. And I think while you see the versatility of everybody on the white album, I think mm -hmm. that's something that really particularly shines with McCartney doing things like Rocky raccoon, honey pie, helter skelter. I, I think he really showed where he could go. You know, the whole album is all over the place, which is the beauty of it. And I think something that a lot of artists after the White Album realized, hey, we don't have to make an album where everything sort of fits in the same genre. We could make an album and do anything we want. And in a lot of ways, I feel like the White Album was one of the first to do that, where you could just play a country and Western song, then play a 20s jazz type of tune, and then a blues song, and then a pop song, and then a ballad. And it's so full of um, musical exploration. And putting these songs back to back, your blues, and why don't we do it in the road, you get to see these two sort of rockers, but one with a band approach and one with that stripped down McCartney Ringo thing that they did so well for so long. You know, some, some of the best songs are McCartney and Ringo. They worked so well together. They really did. And it's a shame they didn't do more together through the years. But, um, you know, they're the, the last men standing. So, you know, there's still hope. We'll I know. I would have loved to hear some Ringo on some wing stuff. Oh, my God, right? Imagine if, like, he brought Ringo in when everybody quit for Band on the Run. You know, McCartney right. did a great job on Band on the Run, but imagine that album with Ringo playing drums. And then they go out on tour and play 6 o'clock together. Yeah, here we go. All right, well, here we go with Your Blues and Why Don't We Do It in the Road. Thanks, Robert. Sure, that was fun. Two, three. Yes, I'm 
fix my eyes The world is licks my bone Feels so suicidal Just like
Our next guest is Kid O'Toole, author of Songs We Were Singing, Guided Tours Through the Beatles' Lesser-Known Tracks, and the Michael Jackson FAQ, All That's Left to Know About the King of Pop. In addition, she's a longtime contributing editor for Beatle Fan Magazine, the Deep Beatles columnist for Something Else Reviews, and writes the Deep Soul column for Blinded by Sound. Great to have you here, Kit. Thank you so much for having me. So, what are the two songs that you picked, and what was the reasoning behind it? Well, the two I picked, and, and it really wasn't planned like this, but they're both uh, George compositions. Um, one, The first one is I Need You. Uh, of course, from Help, and the second is Taxman uh, from Revolver. And the reason I chose them is for I Need You, from the first time I heard the song, the guitar, the volume pedal-controlled guitar, just grabbed me immediately. Um, such a different sound, and it, and it took that song to a new place. You know, it, it almost mimics the the sort of longing of of the narrator and of the lyrics you know of longing for uh for his uh his girlfriend to be with him and you know that guitar that effect is almost sort of a crying effect definitely and yeah and it's just you know it's just another example of how you can use a sound which is fairly simple you know i mean it's 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 nothing complicated but you can use a sound like that to transform a song and set a mood. It, it's true. And he had actually gotten the idea. Um, he liked the Remo 4 guitarist, Colin Manley, and he used a volume pedal. And he tried to show George how to use it. And George actually wanted to use it initially on Babies in Black, but was unable to get the coordination together. So he had John just like using his volume pedal. But by the time they got to I Need You on Help... He had, you know, figured it out and used it to great effect on that song, I think, on that. And yes, it is, which were both recorded the same day. It's it's such a vocal-like quality to the sound, and it's beautiful. Exactly. I think that's a that's a great point that it it does add kind of another voice um, to the song. And I've just, as I said, I've I've never, even though it's it's not a complicated effect. I, I've never really heard anything like it, and so I Need You has just stuck out for me for many, many years. Very cool. Here's I Need You. You don't realize how much I need you Love you all the time and never leave you Please come on So come back and see 
right, Kit, and the next song that you wanted to do is another George Harrison song, the opening track from Revolver, Taxman. Uh, what is it about this song that really makes it special? Well, I mean, I, I just think this is one of George's masterpieces. Um, what a way to kick off uh, a, a groundbreaking album. And there are so many things I could have picked. I mean, Paul's guitar solo that almost mimics you know, sitar, uh, but the bass is what stood out for me. Paul's bass on that, it, it's just immediately, you know, kicks in and it gives the song such power. And what really struck me is, you know, Paul has mentioned in many interviews that James Jamerson was a huge influence on him. Yes, and yes. I think you can hear that, you know, on this track as James Jamerson was the, the king of the, the way I put it is, is, you know, doing a lot with a little. I mean, he was very subtle. I mean, you know, you don't, didn't always appreciate immediately just how complicated his bass playing oh, was. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, and it gave the song such power. And so I think Paul really took a cue from that and decided to up the, the ante on Taxman and, boy, did it ever. I mean, it just gave it that, that the percussion, all just more thumping power. Yet it's melodic. Oh, really melodic, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so I've just thought, I can't imagine what Taxman would sound like without that bass. Oh, I, I it, 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 it makes the song. And, um, you know, as you said, he was very into James Jamerson, who, who played all those bass lines with one finger most of the time, which, which is crazy that Amazing. when you listen to those parts. Um, yeah, but they were all so influenced by Motown. But McCartney, especially, you know, doesn't always get credit for being as funky as he really is. He could really lay down a groove as he did, you know, through Rubber Soul, Revolver, and and onward. But those two albums in particular, there are a lot of really funky bass parts. But definitely Taxman for me, too, is up there. Um, I think we're not the only ones that love it because... The Jam apparently liked it as well with their uh, <laughs> second number one song, Start, from 1980, basically taking that bass line and creating a whole new song around it. So, Yeah, and I think that's a really good point you made about, yeah, you don't typically think of, of Paul as funky. You know, you don't hear right, that, right. that phrase, but he is on this he track. He is really funky. So, all right, here we go with the funky Paul McCartney on George Harrison's Taxman. Thanks, Kit. Thank you.
Our next guest is Jerry Hammack, author of the Beatles Recording Reference Manuals, three of which are currently available, taking us from 1961's My Bonnie, recorded by Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers, a.k.a. the Beatles, to the Magical Mystery Tour project. Great to have you, Jerry. Thanks for having me, Anthony, and congratulations on 100 episodes of The Meltdown. Thanks very much. It's uh, been a while, but I figure for 100, we'll do something a little different and and get some other people's opinions involved here. So Yeah, well, love the show, so oh, uh, thanks. excited to be part of it. Love the books, so it all works Thank well. <laughs> so what were the two songs that you picked, and what in particular makes them so special for you? Uh, the two songs, the first one is With a Little Help from My Friends, and the special aspect of that song is the bass part. Why that came to mind is uh, questions around the bass part were the things that triggered uh, my work in the first place, uh, my work on the books in the first place. Uh, I, as I would, was working as a, a producer and an engineer back in Seattle, uh, there was a, a particular session where we were getting ready to track bass, and the, the bass player said, hey, I'd really love to get that tone from a little help from my friend, with a little help from my friends, can you do that for me? And I, you know, my my answer is always yes. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but then how was I going to pull it off? And so you know, I started uh, doing research into it to figure out what was going on, and and uh, you know, tried to figure out what what was the amp set up, and then how was Emmerich. Um, uh, miking it, or was he using uh, DI, or what was going on? And so, answering that that question at that time sort of triggered, ultimately triggered my look into how did the Beatles do the recordings of every aspect of every track. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, so that's why that that song is particularly special to me. And then, your mother should know is uh, a song that uh, goes back to my childhood. I used to listen to these to Magical Mystery Tour in uh, a bedroom uh, I shared in Seattle with my older brother. And he would put it on the turntable. And and uh, we had these little plastic Beatles figures that you'd get for birthday cakes. Oh, I had and, those. <laughs> yeah, and he stuck them to the middle of the, of the record. And so the Beatles would play in the round for us <laughs> while we'd listen to a side of Magical Mystery Tour. And that particular song just was always one that, that I loved. And in particular, I love the the piano tone on it. Uh, so uh, so that's why I, I I chose those two songs. Uh, uh, the piano tone, you know, why that's so special. It turns out is because that song wasn't recorded at EMI, so it was none of the of the classic pianos that we're familiar with. Right. Uh, it was recorded at uh, Chapel Recording Studios, uh, so uh, on an unknown piano. But they ended up. It probably wasn't a great sounding piano because when they did a, a bounce down of, of of that track, they ended up adding a lot of uh, phase shifting to it. Yeah, that's that's right. And they actually initially didn't think that was the take and went back a few weeks later and re-recorded it at EMI, the version exactly. people have heard on you know anthology, various bootlegs, but then realized, I, and I, I think wisely, that the first version was the one because while the it's nice to have that alternate version it doesn't have the feel and the bounce that um the one they did at chapel does totally totally agree with you sounds a uh, little like a funeral with with the harmonium and the yeah it, it doesn't yeah. It, it just it sort of drags it almost feels like that would have been the first one and then they realized oh <laughs> we have to do this again so it's interesting that it worked out the other way around 
Yeah, I, I love that aspect of the Beatles that they would that they would try different takes on the same song to 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 figure out for themselves what was the one that felt the best that that seemed to have the to have the overall spirit that they wanted to communicate with the song. And I think for the most part, from what we've been lucky enough to hear over the years, whether you know officially released or all the many years of bootleg hunting that I'm sure you did as I did. Um, they usually made the right decision with the version that they would put out. I don't, I try to not think that it's because I know that version so well, but when you hear the ones that they didn't think were up to par, like, you know, Norwegian wood, for example, or your mother should know. Typically they, they got it right when they said, Oh, you know what? We need to do something different. Even something like, Oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da. I, think that the unreleased or the version that was released much later on it it isn't the same as the one that we all know and love yeah the the uh, uh you know one way or another either as a as a uh, a group making this decision or with uh, uh with the the wonderful taste that George Martin brought into the mix you know having experienced so many different types of uh, of music in his life one way or another, yeah, they made the right they made the right choice. I'm I'm in agreement with you. You know, we've 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 both heard a lot of the alternate takes and alternate versions of songs as they're available out there, and uh, I can't think of one that I would rather have than the release versions that they came up with. You know, what? there's one that I that I do still to this day wish they had gone further with their original idea, um, and I think from people I've I've spoken to, it might be one of the favorite. Beatle tracks, like alternate Beatle tracks, is Can't Buy Me Love with the backing vocals. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, I, 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 uh, I will, uh, I will disagree with you there <laughs> respectfully. Um, to me, the backing vocals, they, they give it, uh, they actually date it in a way that the absence of the backing vocals don't allow us to do. The, that kind of uh, almost bop shoop backing vocal that they did it feels nice in that in that take but I don't I, I think it actually it actually dates the song in a way that isn't helpful for the song uh, so I think it was a, a good choice to to leave it out I now you get a pure, you get a piece of like revolution where they actually do the the shoop shoop uh, vocals on uh, the single and you know that has that actually gives it uh, a really cool feel, but um, yeah, I mean, I get it. That's I, I get it. a lot of people do like that version of it. I just always love the way Lennon's vocal sounds on it and singing a lot of those dominant sevens and the, you know, I'm just a big fan of Lennon backing vocals. Like when they're aggressive in a song that isn't necessarily supposed to be as aggressive as his backing vocal take that always, you know, one of my favorite things he does. Well, here we go with Jerry's two picks with a little help from my friends and your mother should know. Thanks, Jerry. You're welcome.
this I get by with a little help from my friends With a little help from my Well, it wouldn't be a multi-track meltdown if I didn't get into the act and pick a few of my favorites. For this show, I've picked three songs from 67 and one from early 68, all with a specific thing that makes them really cool to me. Ringo's drumming. On Only a Northern Song, Lovely Rita, Hey Bulldog, and I Am the Walrus, Ringo lays down grooves that are a precursor to hip-hop. They swing, they're funky, they're slow and they really set the tone for all three songs, although each one is completely different. I also added a few more elements to each mix to highlight different sections that really work well with Ringo's Pocket.
Well, that's it for this time, Beatles fans. I hope you enjoyed part one of my 100th episode celebration of the Beatles multi-track meltdown. Tune in to parts two and three to hear other Beatles authors' picks. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and the Steely Dan FAQ, All That's Left to Know About This Elusive Band. Tune in to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, solo cuts, live tracks, and much, much more. You can pick up the books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any of your favorite booksellers. And you can pick up my new CD, The Steely Dan Sessions, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics, at anthonyrobostelli.com, CD Baby, iTunes, or you could stream it on Spotify or any of your favorite providers. You could also stream past shows on Podbean and iTunes. You could follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN, and like the Facebook page for I Want to Tell You and the Steely Dan FAQ. See you next time.